Yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the meaning! <laughs> that was a really desperate call, and I think we're going to need that level of desperation for this here. Uh, how's it going? I'm Austin. I am joined by the Show Me the Meaning dudes. We've got Raymond. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And we've got Michael Burns. Hey, hi. Hey, hi. And this week we're going to be talking about, I mean, what do you call this? Is this a, a, a classic? The uh, Charlie Kaufman, Spike oh, yeah. Jones classic, Being John Malkovich? If this isn't a classic, I don't know what is. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not true, but. a mind-bendy uh, a mind-bendy investigation, that's for sure. And this was actually the patron-chosen uh, film. So we put a poll out there on our Patreon, and we each selected two films— and we put it out to you all, and the votes came in, and it was a tight race. It was a really tight race. It was actually kind of the dark horse that came up in the final like few minutes or whatever, and it beat out uh, the death of Stalin. So let's go over real quick what the results of the poll were. Uh, so Raymond chose the Babadook and being John Malkovich, the winner. And I feel like the Babadook would be a good choice for a Halloween-y type of thing. So maybe at some point in the future. Yeah, maybe. All right. Uh, Michael chose Death of Stalin and Dick Johnson is dead. Yes. And I chose Enola Holmes and First Reformed. All right. So the final results came in. Being John Malkovich obviously won. Death of Stalin was very close in second. The Babadook was third. Enola Holmes was fourth. First Reformed was fifth. And I'm sorry, Michael, but Dick Johnson is dead. Got, like, no love whatsoever. And you know what? I'm glad it didn't. I watched it last night. I think it would have been a weird hang. So um, (laughs) things have worked out the way they are supposed to, I think. Yeah. I wonder if we can get a little bit of a read on uh, on our patrons, on our followers, by this. You know? Like, what does it say that the top two were Death of Stalin and being John Malkovich? They're both, you know, smart, quippy kind of like analyses of culture and humanity and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe that just means that our our peeps are super smart. Yeah, they're both very wisecracky movies, if I can use that moniker or descriptor here, you know? Um, they, they both do interesting things with filmmaking. They both explore ideas at multiple levels. Um, and they both have, you know, some really classic character actor performances in them as well. Yeah, totally, 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 totally. Um all right, so before we get into the recap, let's go around and just do first impressions. What was it like the first time you saw this film, if you can remember it, and then what was it like to revisit it? Let's start with Raymond. Oh, sure. Um, I, I'm a big fan of this movie. I think it's uh, kind of one, of one of those movies that's kind of the platonic ideal for a show like this that is both really entertaining and rich with a lot of philosophical subtext and um, uh, there's a whole lot to pick apart. And I think I saw this at first in high school um, when I, I went through sort of a Charlie Kaufman kick after first seeing Eternal Sunshine. And uh, I checked this out, an adaptation, and there's really nobody else like him as a screenwriter. And I, I know y'all had the opportunity to talk about his most recent film, um, and uh, Ryan and Jared weren't crazy about it, but it, it, it also is a, a pretty interesting picture, especially if you've, if you've read the book it's based on. It's beat for beat the plot of the book but entirely different and i think only charlie kaufman can do something like that he can take something so weird as there's a portal to a guy's brain and uh you may just be able to puppet him 
And um, I'm going to make that not only an accessible film, but an immensely entertaining and enduring film. I, I think it's a testament to his his singular talent that this movie is not only great, but even just basically watchable. <laughs> like, mm. it's such a weird premise. But I, uh, I really dig it. I'm excited to talk about it. Cool. What about you, Michael? Well, first, I need to thank Raymond for acknowledging that um, I'm Thinking of Ending Things isn't a horrible movie. It was a rough episode for anyone who remembers. It was me on a tiny island by myself (laughs) with Jared and Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they were shooting heat-seeking missiles towards me trying to kill me the whole time. And I felt awkward being like, actually, I think it was good. Um, But yeah, I really enjoyed this time around watching me and John Malkovich. Uh, something that stands out to me, and I think this is similar to you, Raymond. I think the first coffin film I did see was Eternal Sunshine, then kind of went back to watch the others. I think the first time I saw this movie, I had no idea what the fuck was happening, but I liked it aesthetically, and it felt interesting. I was probably like in my early 20s, like college years, and I was like, I don't get this, but I feel like I want to get it, and I <laughs> will get it someday. Um, so I enjoyed it in kind of an experiential way. Now, I think being a little bit older, it's it's great to see how different parts of the film uh, can be like reanalyzed and how you can focus, on, I think, on certain things, on certain uh, reviewing. So I found that kind of cool. There was stuff that was sticking out to me that didn't before. And I actually think one of the things that I never thought about too much before was how good John Malkovich's performance He's actually is. He's so good in this. So, He's great. Yeah. Uh, I think like, you know, because the whole conceit of the movie involves being inside his head that sometimes you don't, at least for me, I don't focus enough on him as the actor in that movie Mm. playing this version of himself and how in a sense that's like, could be seen as harder than just playing some external character. Um, and he's and he's a very big actor too, right? So, but he's also fucking great when he's playing John Cusack playing him. Like, there's a subtle <laughs> yes, distinction in yes, his performance where you're, yes. he adopts some of John Cusack's. Uh, I think John Cusack's from Illinois. He has kind of a, a regional dialect a little bit. Um, he, he adopts aspects of that and some of his mannerisms, and you feel as though he's really channeling a guy channeling him. There are so many layers to it. It's it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, oh, that's such a good point. And like watching it, like those scenes after Cusack fully, um, you know, moves in to 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 Malkovich, the movements, the dialect, it's so great. And even how he becomes, he goes from exuding this like theatrical confidence to the puppet master insecurity of yeah. Cusack's character. It's just great. There, there's a scene where when John Cusack is in control, where he kind of, and it's early on. And he's still getting the the facility of uh, um, Malkovich's body where he comes in and he's just kind of slightly slumped over and he just has that sort of like, you know, kind of closed off hangdog expression and that weird kind of manic energy that John Cusack has when he yeah, yeah. when he meets Catherine Keener in the bar and he keeps saying, oh, oh, what, what, what's her name again? Um, Maxine. Uh, oh, Maxine, where he goes, Maxine. hey, Maxine, how's it going, Maxine? Maxine, Maxine, like, it, it, there are these weird little ticks and uh, and eccentricities that Malkovich really nails. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah, so my experience the first time watching it was very similar to Michael's. I, I felt like I watched it and I thought that there was more going on. Like, I knew that I wasn't getting it all, but I enjoyed it. Even just getting into the story, it's kind of like batshit crazy and the characters are great. And I think Cusack is great. And I actually completely forgot that Cameron Diaz is in this. Like, I, I com- yeah. completely forgot. She like, kind of disappears too. 
Yeah, but like brunette, brunette Cameron Diaz. Like I was like, what the what? I like for some reason I thought the first thing she did was the mask, where she's like the blonde bombshell or whatever, right? So I completely forgot. Um, and then obviously Kathleen Keener is is great. Um, or Catherine Keener is great. Um, but you know what's weird? I so I've seen this a handful of times now, and I actually struggled watching it this time. And it wasn't because, okay. I, and it wasn't because I don't think the film is interesting. I mean, the film is so interesting, but I think I got caught up in trying to like find what was interesting about it, you know, like rather than just enjoying the film. And I and I read a, a like a philosophical treatise on the film that I'll talk about probably at some point, but by a guy named Daniel Shaw, and and it was a really interesting way to analyze the film. And I think that like screwed me up because I went into the film thinking about it too too intellectually rather than watching it as a film and i really think as even though it is a really super smart and philosophical film i think that it's also a really enjoyable film and i think i just lost a little bit of the enjoyment so i think that's on me and i would just tell people if they're going to check out the film like don't try to overthink it just kind of immerse yourself in the craziness of what it is and let it wash over you and then reflect on it afterwards with some friends while you're sitting around doing whatever it is that you do to chill you know, I, I, I think that's a good word of advice because when on this rewatch, I was able to kind of give myself over to it, especially knowing like you would be able to hold down the philosophical end of the discussion and and watching the movie and just, you know, I remember a lot about it. I'm just turning it on to refresh myself. I forgot how funny it is. It is funny. It, there's. There's yeah. just punchlines on punchlines and physical humor and all these weird absurdist touches when they get to the seven and a half floor and just it's it's really fucking funny in ways that I had well, totally I, forgotten. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because I think, you know, I think we often forget or don't even know that Coffin started as a comedy writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he worked on the Dana Carvey sketch show. And this no is the first. That show was just a wrote. murderer's row. <laughs> it was so incredible. Yeah, and he, you know, wrote this screenplay in between comedy writing gigs. So mm. he was in that world and wanted to use this script just as like a spec to get comedy jobs. And I think this movie reminds you of how funny he is and that he does come from that world. Now he's grown uh, increasingly darker and maybe even more self-serious in his, mm. in his recent films. But this is a funny movie. Well, this is a question that I'll, I'll just put it out now and then we'll do the recap and then let's get into it after. Right. Does he need a director? Does he need a Michelle Gondry? Does he need a Spike Jones? Does he need somebody to do the eternal sunshine, you know, to do the being John Malkovich? When he is in control, Anomalisa, Synecdoche, New York, his latest film, is there something... Wait, and Spike Jones did adaptation too, right? Yeah. Yes. If I have this... Okay, great. Sorry. So is there something that he's almost a little too close to the material? I think that's something we could think about. Let's just put a button on it, and then okay. I'll do the recap, and then that's we can maybe, yeah, maybe really we can good question. chat I've about that. I've definitely got some thoughts on that. All right. I have no idea how the fuck I'm going to do this recap. So yeah. let's Best see. Best of luck, sir. Let's see how this works. <laughs> Start right. at the beginning. Okay. So Craig Schwartz is an unemployed master puppeteer in an unfulfilling marriage with his pet-obsessed wife, Lottie. Soon after he gets a job at Lester Corp on floor seven and a half of the Merton Flemmer building in New York City, he discovers a hidden portal that leads directly into the mind of renowned actor John Malkovich. The trip inside Malkovich's mind lets him see and feel the wor- world from Malkovich's perspective for 15 minutes before being spit out into a ditch near the New Jersey Turnpike. When he tells his co-worker and object of desire, Maxine, about the portal, they decide to start a business charging others 200 bucks a pop to be able to experience Malkovich. 
Schwartz's wife Lottie, however, becomes obsessed with the experience, allowing her to live out her transgender desires. One night at Schwartz's boss Dr. Lester's house, Lottie finds a room dedicated to Malkovich. Later, while Lottie is inside Malkovich, he slash they go on a date with Maxine, and Maxine falls in love with Malkovich, or with Lottie inside of him. In fact, when they have sex, Maxine repeatedly calls Malkovich Lottie. Now, Schwartz gets jealous, and he gets pissed, and he locks Lottie in a cage so that he can monopolize Malkovich's mind and date Maxine. While inside, you know, he's a master puppeteer, so he begins to learn that he can actually take over Malkovich entirely. This makes Malkovich more and more paranoid, and after consulting his close friend, Charlie Sheen, he follows Maxine to floor seven and a half, finds the portal, and insists that he enter the portal to his own mind. Once inside, he finds himself in a world where everyone looks like him and can only say Malkovich. After his own 15 minutes, he's spit out and demands that the portal be shut. Of course, Schwartz refuses. Lottie then escapes from the cage, tells Maxine that she hasn't been inside Malkovich, but that actually Maxine has been dating Schwartz Malkovich. But Maxine's enjoyed herself so much, she decides to just continue. Lottie then runs to Dr. Lester for help, and he reveals to her that he fully knows about the portal and that he's actually been using it to live on for years and years in other people's bodies, changing from one to the next as soon as the new body is ripe on the 44th birthday. The portal currently just happens to be linked to Malkovich, and Lester's plan has always been to wait until the right time to move into Malkovich's body. Then we fast forward eight months, and Schwartz Malkovich has quit acting and become a famous puppeteer. He and Maxine are still together, and she's pregnant. But it's almost Malkovich's 44th birthday, so Lester, Lottie, and friends capture Maxine and demand that Schwartz leave Malkovich's body. He refuses. Lottie and Maxine then fall together into the Malkovich portal and travel through Malkovich's unconscious childhood memories before getting ejected in the New Jersey Turnpike Ditch. Maxine then tells Lottie that she actually conceived her baby while Lottie, not Schwartz, was inside Malkovich. So Schwartz later decides, after a bar fight, to leave Malkovich voluntarily, and he ends up finding out that Lottie and Maxine have fallen in love. Meanwhile, Dr. Lester and his friends enter the portal just before the portal to Malkovich moves on to the next host, and despondent, Schwartz gets all ticked off after he's been uh, uh, ejected and he decides to go back into the portal, but he ends up inside a different body who happens to be Maxine and Lottie's daughter, Emily. He has no control, however, over Emily, but is forced to watch Maxine and Lottie live happily ever after through their daughter's eyes. And of course, the film closes with another appearance of an aged Charlie Sheen with Dr. Lester slash Malkovich telling him about the plan to prolong their lives through Emily. End of movie. But before we continue, I want to give a shout out to this week's sponsor, Storyblocks. If you're a weekly listener, then you already know that Storyblocks is an awesome subscription service that gives you access to high-quality, royalty-free video, audio, and images. Once you download an asset, it's yours to keep for personal or commercial use. You can pick a subscription plan based on your needs, and the unlimited option provides you with access to everything, including templates for Adobe programs. If you head on over to Storyblocks now, you can check out their latest feature that comes as a part of the unlimited option, which is their video editing tool called Maker. Choosing the right asset can be difficult, and it can take up a lot of space to download all your options to try them out. So Maker allows creators to add text animations and transitions with a single click. You can upload your own footage, imagery, and audio to give different assets a test run. Maker even allows you to export your media at different aspect ratios, so you can post on whatever channel your business or project requires. So check out Storyblocks and their unlimited access plan today by going to storyblocks.com slash 
wisecrack or by clicking the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. All right. So with that strange recap, what do we think here? Um, do you want to start off by chatting about, like, does he need a director? Is is he kind of too clever for his own good? What's, what's the deal here? What do we think? Well, Michael, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, my simple thoughts would be, I think... I think he needs a director. Um, I think all of his movies, I'll say this, all of his movies are good. I like all of his movies. I don't think Charlie Kaufman has, has, has made or written a film that sucks. I think that he is clearly an eccentric guy that has tons of ideas and lots of stuff he wants to cram into every film. And I think having a different personality, like a Spike Jones or Michelle Gondry helps. And I think it especially helps that both Jones and Gondry are a bit more playful. Um, you know, mm. both have been involved in like the world of making like music videos and stuff. So there's a jackass. Wasn't Spike f- Jones the jackass dude? Yeah, he was part. He was part of that. He did a bunch of Beastie Boys videos, Bjork video, Fat Boy Slim videos, tons of shit. Um, but I think they bring a fun to the films that mm. on his own he doesn't have. And like I don't know, it's the next key New York, and I'm thinking of ending things are great movies. They're not fun movies, to me at least. Sure. Um, I think there's definitely uh, the humor is a lot more pronounced in something like this or even adaptation, which is just goes completely off the rails. But if you uh, I remember hearing a story about Synecdoche, New York, uh, which was I'm I'm pretty sure his first directorial effort. That was he's only directed three movies, right? That Anomalisa and uh, I'm thinking of many things. Yeah. And I heard a story that his first uh, cut that he submitted to the studio of Synecdoche, New York was like four and a half hours long. Of course it was. And they, yeah, and they told him, hey, we can't release this. And he was just like, why not? And they said, well, we just, we can't release a four and a half hour long movie. And he's like, okay, how long of a movie can you release? And they're like, I don't know, like two and a half hours. And he goes, okay. And then he just like dips, <laughs> just cuts to, and it makes you think like anyone who can just up and cut two hours and then still have something that is uh, rich and deep with, uh, all these ideas and mythology and characters as uh, a movie like Synecdoche, New York is, to your point, Michael, I, I think his head is just brimming with creativity. Um, that said, that is not an isolated incident. If you read early versions of Eternal Sunshine, the script goes past the point, and spoilers if you haven't seen Eternal Sunshine, but it goes past the point that it ends in the movie, and they keep meeting and deleting each other until they're in like their 80s and 90s it's devastating and yeah it just it keeps going and going and going until they've essentially just deleted every last brain cell where they could hide each other and then they're just vegetables at the end and it's fucking heartbreaking um so i I do think he's always had this strain this this kind of darkness and 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 yeah and 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 this depth and, and gravity to his work i think with something like this Maybe uh, what what you brought up, Michael, that this was supposed to be kind of a calling card for him to to be able to write other movies. Maybe that being a little like one degree removed with regards to his intent, maybe he felt a little bit more freed to just be freewheeling, be a little bit more funny. He didn't feel like he had to to make a point with every single line or every single scene. So I can see how his his career progression maybe could have you know, ended up in a place where I think he's still making really good and interesting movies, but there's a certain pressure on him now, perhaps, to make a Charlie Kaufman movie. 
Um, and that has gotten refined and reduced to the meta aspects or the, the darkness or the explorations of grief and philosophy. And I think when it may be, it maybe he feels kind of painted in a corner, uh, in, in that respect, but, uh, I mean, like, like I said earlier, when I turned on, I'm, or, or even when I first heard that he was attached to write and direct, I'm thinking of ending things, having read that book, and it's a fairly straightforward sort of horror thriller, um, you know, it, it, it's extremely dread-inducing with regards to the atmosphere and stuff. You could make a straightforward adaptation of that, but when he was attached to it, I was like, there's no fucking way he's making that book. Not, no, I mean, he did, he did make a film called Adaptation about making an adaptation. So you know that he, he when he does an adaptation, it's it's different. But he was hired to adapt the book that he's adapting in the movie adaptation. And yeah. that was his adaptation of The Orchid Thief. Was like He literally got hired to adapt The Orchid Thief, and he just said, fuck it, I can't do this. I'm just going to write a movie about trying to adapt this book. And, and that's the thing that's so, I think, inspired uh, about him. And maybe it has a lot to do with the permissiveness of sort of mid-90s, early aughts film culture that you could get away with really weird esoteric visions back then. But now, I, I mean, I'm grateful for every Charlie Kaufman movie we get, but they're fewer and further between because people just aren't willing to take those kind of risks anymore. It, it's the good thing with the Netflix model, right? Like, I don't know if it's as freewheeling as it was maybe five, four years ago, but before they were just basically giving creatives money and there was no real oversight or checks or anything like that like you get with larger production companies and studio projects and things like that. And Charlie Kaufman needs that, I think, right? And it's pretty freaking amazing. This was his first screenplay. This was his first feature. I mean, I'm sure he'd written a boatload before, but this is the first one that actually went into production and got made. For him to be able to make a film like this where, I mean, there's a line in it where John Cusack, you know, Schwartz is like talking about the metaphysical, he uses the words, the metaphysical and philosophical implications. Like, not many writers in general can get away with that, let alone a first-time screenwriter, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So it's amazing that, that he was able to get away with what he got away with. And I think it's telling that this is something he wrote without the intention of getting it made. So maybe that that allows uh, you to say things yeah. in the script or try things. It takes the you pressure know you're off. You're not going to be pitching it. Yeah. Oh, I was. I really like what you said, Michael, about the fun element. I think that's it. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly it. I think he's a very kind of almost morose, self-serious artist, tortured artist, right? Um, sort of thing. And and I think that when he doesn't have that other person to kind of like pull back a little bit and add a little bit of levity. I think that's precisely what happens is he gets a little bogged down. Like Synecdoche, New York, I think is great, but I can totally see why it would be a turnoff to some people because it is just dire. And when and when Raymond says yeah. that the end of Eternal Sunshine was just, again, this sort of like dire, really dark, hopeless ending, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's very Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> but it took somebody else like a Michel Gondry to kind of lighten it up a little bit and add a little bit more of maybe almost a romanticism to it, which is much more of Gondry's style. You know, well, can I ask you guys a question that goes with this then? How much do you think the John Cusack character is a representation of Kaufman's own like creative unconscious or creative anxiety? I, I think that to a certain degree, obviously, every every character is an extension of the author. Um, but y you could I mean, you can't deny that there is this theme that runs straight through his work that this tortured artist, whether they are. Uh, a puppeteer or a screenwriter or a theatrical director in Synecdoche, New York, um, or, or his, you know, his, his kind of preoccupation with theater. And I'm thinking of ending things in eternal sunshine. People are, are sketching and coloring their hair. Like 
virtually everyone, or at least all of the main characters in his films, express themselves explicitly through art, and, and often through dialogue they mention as much. So I, 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 I'm, I'm certain that there's a whole lot of him and his, his, uh, his nebbishiness and uh, his anxiety that, that's imbued in the John Cusack character, but I think you could, uh, you could say the same for his version of John Malkovich, that he is uh, this you know, egotistical artist. I don't, I don't think it's any coincidence that when Malkovich goes into his own head, he's just surrounded by himself. Um, you know, he, he's constantly wrestling with the, the sort of ends of the artistic spectrum, whether it's, uh, someone who has absolutely no confidence and beats himself up like, uh, Jim Carrey in Eternal Sunshine, uh, his own, uh, facsimile and adaptation or, uh, John Cusack in this, or in the same movies, John Malkovich in this, uh, um, his fake brother in adaptation, who is just all all expression and no edit button, or uh, even um, uh, Clementine in Eternal Sunshine, who who is just pure expression and, and and doesn't try to edit herself or anything like that. She doesn't apologize for who she is. I I think you kind of see those those poles in a lot of his work. Yeah, there's definitely. I mean, I, I like you said, every single film is personal, but I, I feel like his films are almost, almost too intensely personal sometimes, right? And it's a it's an intense like exploration of his own insecurities and neuroses and things mm-hmm. like that. And uh, I, when I watch his films, there is a, a constant sense of discomfort that I get, where I'm like, dude, Kaufman, what's up with you, bro? Like, are you okay? What are you exploring? What what's going on? And I think it's beautiful, but there is literally a sense where I feel like it's like. Not to use like a, a, a cliche term, but it is like self therapy. Uh, all sure. of his films are, you know, definitely when he's putting them out there. So yeah, and I think like Raymond pointed this out uh, about the 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 Malkovich unconscious and like the narcissism there. But I think it's interesting to look at like three different things in relation. One would be you know the Cusack character as the misunderstood artist who gets punched. Uh, you know, on the street for his puppet show because people are are humping from other rooms. (laughs) Then you have like, yeah. Then you have like the first level of Malkovich unconscious, which is the Malkovich, 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 Malkovich world. Then you have the one that the the, the Cameron Diaz and Catherine Keener character go into that's the like deep unconscious of childhood trauma, abuse, being picked on, all these sorts of things. So the sort of like, you have this, this sort of, art coming from a place of, of trauma. You have the sort of narcissism necessary for an artist who believes their, they, they, their, their work deserves to be made. And then you have the like misunderstood Cusack character. And I like all of those as sort of like different slices of like the artist psychology. Now, last, last episode that we did on Kaufman, there was some discussion about like that the film was kind of self-indulgent and uh, self-aggrandizing. Do you think that there's something in that? Do you think there's something to that with Kaufman's output more generally? That doing this type of investigation, this type of, I don't know, airing out his own neurotic dirty laundry and exploring the deep recesses of the, the causes of being a tortured artist, is there something that's like a little bit self-aggrandizing? Well, I, I think that art at least insofar as it's commodified is inherently egotistical in a way, because there's this tacit acknowledgement that like, I think the contents of my brain are worth the contents of your wallet. Um, so you can't, (laughs) you can't really escape that. And I do understand, uh, some criticism that people could have of him that, uh, you know, maybe his work is too personal or, but 
if it's as entertaining as this, it doesn't really concern me too much where it comes from. I think that he writes these and, and these pieces are cathartic for him in a way that art is cathartic for a lot of artists. And if it helps him and it's appealing and entertaining and engaging for the audience, I mean, clearly this movie has uh, has had an impact because, you know, 20 years later or 25 or 26 years later now, um, it, it still is, <laughs> I mean, it's giving us a lot to talk about. There's a whole lot to unpack with it. Yeah, I kind of, with that question that you asked, and I really love your answer to that as well, Raymond, about, you know, is it too personal? Is it too self-indulgent? I don't know. It makes me think of music. Like, I would never complain if Bruce Springsteen got too self-indulgent and personal on an album <laughs> or something, right? If anything, I would I would argue that, like, for, let's say, like, a Springsteen or a Dylan or or like a, a Dolly Parton or whoever, their best work is their most personal, introspective work. And what about Kanye? Mind, like, why his work is pretty introspective and self-indulgent. I I don't want to go too this, far. Down this is a totally I different think, tangent. Yeah, but no. But I think like I I think when we apply that standard to a filmmaker, it's sort of like why why wouldn't I want that? You know, I could, there's a million filmmakers that want to make a movie for us that just tries to like tick boxes or like follow their screenwriting textbook to a T. Um, and you know, Kaufman in adaptation does make fun of, of screenwriting teachers and textbooks. Yeah, the, the, the save but, the cat, the save the cat model and shit yeah, like that. Yeah. But like, I don't know. I, I think when you have something to say and you have a weird and interesting mind like his, go for it, man. Uh, yeah. be, be a narcissistic artist, uh, and, and self-involved in that way. Yeah. I, I dig it. I agree. I, cause I like, I like when an artist has license, right. To be irresponsible. I like when, when we mm-hmm. give the artist the, the kind of keys to the city, um, and we entrust them to challenge us. You know, obviously I think there yeah. is a social and ethical responsibility to especially popular media, uh, mediatized art. But nevertheless, I enjoy those spaces where, where someone who is truly talented enough is able to kind of, um, buck the trends, so to speak, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, the the other thing, just to to dovetail off of uh, what you guys have been saying, is um, it is weird and esoteric, but it still fits within the framework of a studio film. You yeah. know, there, it, it, it's structured and paced there, it, uh, appropriately. It keeps your attention. It's it's snappy dialogue. Like you can really explore a lot of weird things if you package them in a recognizable format. And I think a lot of folks underestimate audiences, especially uh, young audiences and modern audiences. Um, we underestimate their attention spans and we underestimate their, their interest in, in weird and esoteric things. I, I think that if, if you're willing to make your personal message or your statement fit within the confines of a marketable film, which I think this one, despite how convoluted that uh, uh, synopsis that you read off at the beginning is, Austin, when you watch it, it sweeps you up in its energy. You accept the rules, and the rules are simple enough that you don't get lost. You know, it's not like um, sometimes I I watch uh, a movie like, I don't know, Inception, where it's like they have to stop every 10 or 15 minutes to explain more rules. Yeah. And... You know, a movie like that isn't overly complicated, but even so, when when your script is built on, uh, okay, this rule, now this rule, and then this rule is built on those rules, and there's this this math to it that's constantly compounding, you you do have to to stop and make sure that the the house of cards doesn't fall down. Whereas 
I never feel like this script is labored. I never mm. feel like yeah. he's like he's you know working overtime to try and hold everything together. I think the thing moves. It it, it works. It, it like it may be weird, but it it's definitely relatable. And you know what's crazy? He doesn't explain the rules. Like you don't understand why yeah, is this portal. Just thinking that. Yeah, why you, is this you portal never see attached? Where they fall out of? It's just uh, the top of the screen, and you're like, well, that's, that's yeah. where the tunnel. Well, you know ends. what? Like message for Christopher Nolan, I guess. Like it doesn't matter. He doesn't yeah. explain all the rules, and it's fine because it's a movie, and we don't have to have. Yeah, someone stopping to like explain it to us every because 10 as minutes. soon as soon as you try and stop and explain how this door in the in the wall of the little room goes into John Malkovich's head, that's when you fucking lose people because they're like, oh, that's stupid. As soon as fantasy right. starts trying to become science fiction exactly. and edging, you know, Great if you just point. let it be fantasy, then people will go with it. I was literally there's a quote where somebody says that that this isn't science fiction, this is fantasy, uh, like oh, a neurotic sure. fantasy, and I think that's exactly right. And uh, I think that's why why this film's convoluted storyline is successful. It's precisely because it doesn't kind of get bogged yeah. down in the details. If you try to explain it, it falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, I want to read a quote from an interview with Kaufman because this is kind of based on a on a theme of, of the film that I thought is interesting because the title of the film is Being John Malkovich. So the question is, is do these people who are all paying 200 bucks a pop and then you know even Schwartz who becomes the master puppeteer – do they pay for the experience to be John Malkovich or is there some sort of weird hybrid or some sort of synthesis? What's going on? Here's what Kaufman said. He said, well, you're inside someone else's skin, but Craig doesn't have the experience of being Malkovich. He has the experience of using Malkovich. He uses him to be with Maxine and then he uses Malkovich's notoriety to get his own career going. So it's using John Malkovich. Yeah, I'd say it's using John Malkovich. Well, this I, I'm sure this is something that may be on your uh, list to sort of explore, Austin, but the, the whole notion of the, the Cartesian self. Um, do you think this is an endorsement of Cartesian philosophy or rebuke of it? Yeah, I think that the interesting thing is this quote is more an endorsement of it. Because it's kind of implying that there's a sense, like an essence of Malkovich that is never distorted, right? You're only ever using Malkovich. But when I watched the film, the funny thing is I Here actually I actually think it's, I think it's different. When I, watched, right? when I watched the film, I do think that there is no real Malkovich uh, at, at when, when it's taken over. Not like there's no true Malkovich, right? Like, yeah, there's the moment when, when he kind of snaps out of it and he's like, I'm fucking paranoid. I heard this other thing in my head. But by the time that Cusack is doing the puppeteer dance with Malkovich's body, and by the time – at that point, I think there's something much more synthetic going on. There's more of a hybrid going on. So the funny thing is is that his quote totally seems to me to fly contradictory to how I interpret the film, you know? In, in in a way, and that's kind of what what made me think of that when you brought that up. Because when I watch it, having Malkovich's head as this, I mean, essentially, it appears to be a tangible vessel for these transient egos to inhabit. Like that flies directly in the face of what he's saying in that interview. But this is this is also the guy who you know. When uh, when he won an Oscar, he took the stage and said, "I don't want to take my time. I don't want to talk. I want to be gone or whatever." <laughs> he disappears. <laughs> so, it, like, there there is this aspect of his personality too, where I'm like, is that also part of it? Does it? I mean, he seems to have contempt for the whole 
the the show side of show business or, or maybe the business side of show business i mean it, it may be difficult to to draw the distinction but I wouldn't put it past him because, well, this is something I was going to bring up that so often on this show, you guys will talk about movies within a philosophical framework. And that makes sense because I think all art can kind of be seen through a philosophical framework in the same way that it can be seen through a political framework. But it's, I think, fairly uncommon or infrequent for the filmmaker or the screenwriter to be aware of those frameworks when they're developing something. Um, I think Charlie Kaufman is one of the rare filmmakers that actually engaging with the dialectic in a, in a, in a, mm. an intentional way. That's interesting. No, no, this is interesting. So actually Michael and I both had a supervisor at various points, didn't last for the entire time, I don't think, but at various points by the name of John Malarkey, um, who he's actually changed his name now and he uses an Irish name, but I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm sorry if I'm being Malucky wasn't Irish enough for him. I well, he's like it's like the Irish, the real Irish saying. It's like my my order. Yeah, Malarkey's the one that the uh, the English colonists shoved on people as they destroyed their oh, language. Okay. But let's not go down this rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. Michael is clearly of Irish descent. Everybody. <laughs> um, no, um, but no, yeah, but, so, but yeah, get back to so John. John has written a lot on like the philosophy of film, and one of the things that he he kind of does is he takes a different route and he says rather than looking at like how we can do a philosophy of film he says that no like film is a language in itself film is is something of itself like you shouldn't do a philosophy of film you should just let the films kind of speak the language themselves and if it results in some sort of philosophical motifs or concepts that's a separate issue and so this article that i actually just quoted that interview from by this guy named daniel shaw um it's behind a paywall so that sucks if you need if you need it, you know, you can contact us and I'm sure I can figure out a way to get it to you. But it's called On Being Philosophical and Being John Malkovich. And one of the things that this author Daniel Shaw argues is that this is a film that is a philosophy. Like it's not just simply espousing a philosophy. It is in its own way a type of philosophical language. And I think that that's kind of maybe the difference of somebody like Charlie Kaufman to maybe somebody like Nolan. Where Nolan, you know, we can do all kinds of analysis. Like everybody loves to talk about the Joker and, you know, political philosophy and stuff like that or Batman and like I don't know the Batman begins and how you have to like climb into the cave or whatever that's the return whatever it is you know what I'm talking or the rises um but you know what I'm talking yeah. about that there are themes that he's trying to represent through these characters I don't quite see that that that's what Kaufman's doing rather I think that he just is like exploring these really personal themes but because he's such a philosophical thinker they end up being projections of concepts if that makes sense all right. Can I ask you all a question that I think relates to this then? And yeah. this might be overreaching or reading into stuff, but something that stood out to me was the difference in seeming motivation for people that wanted to be inside John Malkovich. That felt weird to say inside John Malkovich, but I said it and it still feels <laughs> weird, but it's part of the film. Um, but like, so we have, you know, the Schwartzes, I guess, yeah, because Maxine never goes in. The Schwartzes go into Malkovich for experience, um, to be something else, to explore a part of themselves, to use their artistic skill. You know, for the Cusack character, he's a vessel for his own art. For the Cameron Diaz character, it's a way for her to explore male identity. But then the crew of like the old timers, like the extras from Cocoon that live in the mansion together, <laughs> like their vibe seems to be just like, we don't want to die. 
So we yeah. jump into different host bodies for the simple perpetuation of life. So maybe that means nothing. Maybe I'm looking for rules in a world where there shouldn't be rules. Or maybe it's saying something about like experience. Because, of course, I also think it's significant that you can be a Malkovich for 15 minutes. Um, as like the general sort of thing. It's like this experiential thing. It's this Well, and it's 15 minutes. Is that getting your 15 minutes of fame? I think it's something like oh, that. Sure. 15 minutes think about of being that. special, being important. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, is, I, think, I think there's definitely like the lineup of people that are paying the 200 bucks because it's John Malkovich and he's such an amazing actor. Like part of that is I want to see what it's like to live as a celebrity. Part of it is I want to see what it's like to live as another person. And then the interesting thing is most of them have enjoyable experiences, right? Like it's amazing. It's exhilarating to, to, to literally live as another person, be in another mm-hmm. person's bodies. But then when Malkovich goes into his own portal and he comes face to face with his own self, what is it? It's, it's torture. terrifying. Yeah. yeah. And it's just solipsistic. So I think there's an interesting almost tension there between all of these other people and their various desires to live as another person for whatever the reasons are. If it's just because they want to live forever or if it's because they want to experience something that they can't experience from within their own like identity position in the case of Cameron Diaz or uh, within kind of like their failures because they haven't had the opportunities or whatever it is in the case of Cusack's character. Um, And then that's kind of different, all of those motivations compared to kind of what happens when Malkovich goes in. Right? Yeah. It's totally Everybody different. has their reasons. I mean, the first guy is great where he comes in and goes, I want to be someone different. And they go, well, we can offer you a chance to be John Malkovich. He goes, well, that would be my second choice. <laughs> like, yes. It's just so such good. a ridiculous line. Well, okay. So to talk about that guy then, right? Like, so that desire to leave my mundane life and experience something as a celebrity or someone different, like how much of that, and I'm not trying to do too much of a stretch here. How much of that is just like what social media has turned yeah. into and what, Everything from reality TV to the way in which, like, there's celebrities who post every fucking thing they eat or when they shit on their Instagrams. Like, our ability to, like, we can be people in a level we couldn't. Like, when this movie got made, celebrity was still a kind of, like, special, mysterious thing. And for the past 20 years, all we've done is chip away at that and make it, like, less special and less exclusive. Who would you um, who would you make this movie? Who would this be today if it were being blank blank? You know, there's there's no one that has that same kind of mystique. Well, and isn't ce- isn't Instagram and in a way when you're using a Kardashian filter? Aren't you being Kim Kardashian? Um, or when you're doing a pose that you saw some fitness guy do, aren't you being Matt does fitness? Like, isn't there a sense in which this? We're trying to kind of live through the eyes of these other individuals. But then here's the irony is, but it's all the same shit. So is it really actually yeah. engaging the other, another person? Or is it just that it's all kind of homogenized and we're all just kind of like participating in the same fantasies of whatever it but is? But then is, is, that, is that what's interesting about seeing John Malkovich in this movie that when we first see him, he's like eating toast, drinking coffee, reading the paper. And it's like, oh, shit, I do those things. And then he like, <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Like we just see him like hits, being a normal person. That hits on something specific, though, that kind of goes unmentioned, which is that John Cusack is the only person who ever gets to pilot the body other than you know the old folks but through the course of the movie everyone who's visiting is just there watching so that is even like there's something to that too where it's like is it just this notion that i can relinquish control 
and I can just be a passive observer and not be concerned with, you know, what in, I mean, you could make the argument that it's, it's about escapism or celebrity culture in general and things like that. But it, it is one of those things to note that like the one person who does have control of the body uh, ends up completely destroying himself and everyone else just has a grand old time completely letting go of all free will and control. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And I think the point you just made about the Cusack character is how much of like, he sacrifices his life and his happiness for his quote unquote art throughout the film. Sure. Um, and, and ruins his life in pursuit of these sorts of things. Whereas the ones that kind of just like go in and go out. And it yeah, totally right. romanticizes the other too. Cause it's like, it's the grass is greener yeah. sort of thing. Like, Oh, we want to be somebody else. You want to be somebody else. But then Malkovich, when he goes into his own self, that's like just self-indulgence. Like it's just, everything is him. And he's like, fuck, I don't want to be me. Like, get me the fuck out of me. I even Malkovich probably wants to be somebody else. Right. And then of course, when Lottie and Maxine go into the unconscious, then you're like, Oh really? You want to be this person who has all of these traumatic experiences. It's kind of like a very cynical take on, um, that that desire that the desire for escapism. It's being seeing like, oh, you see these people, but fuck, man, we're all fucked up when you get down to the deep recesses of the unconscious and stuff like that. Do you really want to be these other people? And it doesn't really leave you with any solution. It's not like, ah, oh, you should just be true to yourself and be happy with yourself. It's none of that. But it's basically um, just kind of you know problematizing the romanticizing of others of otherness. You know? Yeah. Well, while we kind of like wind into and well, actually, Raymond, go ahead, because I, I think I'm going to derail things. <laughs> oh, OK. No, I, I was just going to say you, you hit on something interesting there, Austin. I think that uh, even though everyone who's giving so much of themselves for this experience and, and like I said, they're, they're entering this head and relinquishing control. And um, to some degree, Malkovich also makes that bargain when he gets a call from a complete stranger and she says, you know, meet me at this restaurant and uh, I'll be there at this time. And like there, there is this, like you said, there's this yearning that he exhibits too for he doesn't really know what it is, but it's going to be something different. And I, I think that you can say that across the board for everyone as opposed to except for maybe. You mentioned, Michael, that all the old folks seem to just want to live forever, except for John Cusack's boss, who I think just wants to be able to fuck in yeah. perpetuity. He's just solely, solely driven by sex. Yeah. And it's just Guy like it, it comes back to that notion of like, well, what what makes immortality worthwhile if you don't have any desire left? Like for for Craig, his entire desire is to be with Maxine. And when he's denied that, he's denied it in the worst imaginable way whereas all these other people just want the most just the basest things they you know to experience the world through someone else's eyes or to just fuck in perpetuity and it's like well right. that guy that guy seems to be having a grand old time at the age of 105 all right well uh, let's let's leave that uh, as the final note point. Wait, well here let's oh i had a you have one okay quick point quick point, point. <laughs> so quick dumb. point and then so we'll dumb. move on this to the mailbag 30 seconds 30 okay, seconds go. 30 seconds okay, it's crazy that Katherine Keener in this movie has a job where people pay her to go inside other people's minds while in Get Out, she has a similar role in that family. That's all. Get, I, yeah, get I out, was great. thinking about Get Out a little bit as I was watching this too. So yeah. Same here. See, that, that, took, that took 20 seconds. We're all okay. Appreciate yeah, Malko, you, man. Malkovich is definitely <laughs> in the sunken place in this movie. <laughs> yes. And before we continue on to the mailbag, I want to give a shout out to our last sponsor of the night, HelloFresh. I don't know about you, but I love to cook. It feels better than eating out and usually tastes better. The problem is that preparation is always so time-consuming. I don't want to have to go to three grocery stores to grab everything I need, especially for specialty items. 
I end up with a sauce I won't be able to finish before expiration date or buy a bunch of unique herbs in excess. Enter HelloFresh with their pre-measured and mouth-watering meals that are delivered right to your door. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. You can save 40% by using HelloFresh versus shopping at your local grocery store too. When you order HelloFresh, you can find something for everyone, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and kid-friendly recipes, and you can change your preferences at any time. In fact, this past week I made these Sichuan glazed pork meatballs, and it was so easy to make. Check out HelloFresh today by going to hellofresh.com slash 80wisecrack and use code 80wisecrack to get a total of 80 bucks off across 5 boxes, including free shipping on your first box. So that's hellofresh.com slash 80wisecrack and code 80wisecrack for 80 bucks off 5 boxes, including free shipping on your first box. Now, back to the show. All right, so let's move on to the mailbag. Um, we've got some voicemails, or actually a voicemail this week, and then we'll have a couple emails. For those of you out there, if you want to engage with us, if you want to support Michael in like defending Charlie Kaufman, if you want to rag on uh, Raymond, whatever, hey, what? let us know. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Um, but you can uh, you can call us at one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. That's one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. We've got a call from Robin this week. Hi, Wisecrack. I hope you guys are coming back for the pandemic special. It's Robin Los Angeles calling. Hey, I was thinking, you know, the show is shock satire, right? But it just changed. If you think about it, past topics, I mean, they'll hit all kinds of controversial stuff. Randy Marsh using the N-word, but that doesn't affect me because I'm a white guy. Cartman not playing his NCAA, I mean CBAA players because I never played college sports. Butters taking on the entire glee club with guns because thankfully no horrible mass shootings have ever affected me. But the pandemic special does affect me. It affects us all so directly. Self satire anymore. It's surreal satire. And it just makes this whole special too much to process. I really want to do the whole English class thing and, you know, look at all the little major and minor flaws and the metaphors and the characters. Um, but I just, I can't. It's just too much. You know, the way I can do, though, is I can point out what the episode got right. The pandemic made Eric Cartman act altruistically for the first time ever. Seriously, has there ever been another time where Eric Cartman has done something altruistically? I kind of wish the episode had ended there, but, you know, that wouldn't be South Park. Seeing President Garrison torch science with a literal flamethrower less than 24 hours after the most horrifying presidential debate in U.S. history, and I'm saying that as a former Republican voter, this is too much. It's all too much. You know what? We're all Stan. Because we're pretending to be strong, we miss our lives, but we also want to be responsible and set a good example. We're confused, we're scared. We really feel like we need to set a good example because we live in a vacuum of leadership and it just seems like all the crazy people are in charge. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're all on the verge of sobbing. Maybe we should. won't make any difference, but maybe it'll make us feel better. But you know what? President Garrison makes a good point. Please go vote. 
I know this isn't a politics politi- uh, politics uh, podcast, and I know Biden ain't Bernie. If you're thinking about sitting this one out, don't. Biden might not be the best guy in the world, but he is a useful fire extinguisher. So just, just please don't let the better be the enemy of the good here. And don't be afraid to go cry. Stan's right. I think that this podcast just got a fourth host. He's just oh my going God. for it. Yeah, first of all, his voice is amazing. It is made for radio. Like, that guy should seriously that be has talking. to be a voiceover actor. Has to. Has not, to be. Someone snatch him up. All right. Well, did you guys see the pandemic special? Nope. So I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Uh, I did. And what do you think? Did Robin hit on anything interesting there? Um, was it Robin or was it Rob in Los Angeles? I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, oh, um, it I, might be Rob I, in Los I, I Angeles. That's yeah. that's beside the point. <laughs> um, I I thought it was interesting. I thought it was bold. Um, you know, as Rob stated, or Robin, apologies. Um, we're all going through this together right now, and uh what we are experiencing whether or not we care to admit it is trauma you know and and it can sometimes be tough to to make art or comedy especially out of trauma because mm. uh we may worry that you know it, it's a thin line or a delicate line to walk um i guess i really appreciate the voicemail and and you know i'm sure i can speak for all of us and say that i, I appreciate the listeners and, and and when they uh add to the conversation in such a thoughtful way. But it, if, if I may, just to kind of tag what he was saying, you know, South Park has handled a lot of things. They've confronted a lot of things, whether, like he said, it was uh, racism in certain episodes or uh, school shootings in certain episodes or the uh, exploitation of student athletes in the episode about the NCAA. But... I would kind of push back a little bit, Rob, and say that like whether or not those things endanger you directly, they do affect all of us. And just to tag your point, because I think it was a, a thoughtful voicemail, our work doesn't end with voting. Our work begins with voting. Um, you know, all of these things that South Park has uh, has satirized, and all of these things that the the pandemic has brought to the surface, they were always there. And they they were always there affecting the most vulnerable among us, even if they weren't affecting us directly. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to remember, yes, get out and vote, but that's where the work begins. It's not where the work ends. You know, take to the street, uh, you know, join protests. If you're if you're too scared to join protests, because it does get really scary out there, donate to Black Lives Matter, donate to bail funds in, in major cities around the country, where uh, especially where police uh, violence has been most pronounced against protesters. Um, you know, take this opportunity because, and, and, and I don't mean to get on a soapbox here because as Rob said, this isn't really a politics podcast, but all art is political. So in that sense, it is a political podcast. And I think when we're confronted with these kind of questions, we owe it to ourselves and the audience to be straightforward about it and, and to give full throated support to the people who are on the ground doing the work every day, every year, and who aren't just checking a box every two or four years. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Um, I know. I know. I, I, I feel... do think we have to like get through some more. Uh, that's that's all I have to say. And, and I do calls. appreciate yeah. the voicemail. I I don't want him to feel attacked. I just you know it, it, injustice for one is injustice for all. So you know let's let's pull together and build something better yeah, after yeah. this pandemic. See, it's always tough to transition now from serious shit to segue to something else. But I'm going <laughs> to do a really tactless transition now and read something from the mailbag from uh, Braden. 
Um, again, if you want to email us, you can email us movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. So Brayden says, hey, Wisecrack2, longtime listener here. I wanted to make a comment about I'm thinking of ending things. I enjoyed the movie but felt that a lot of the references were fairly niche. I have a background in musical theater and was actually in a high school production of Oklahoma. I thought I could provide some context specifically about the dance ballet scene. I hesitate to call this scene an homage to the musical because it really is an exact reproduction of the ballet sequence at the close of the first act of Oklahoma, but the ballet portrays a dream that the female is having in which she marries the hero but is later kidnapped by the villain. The hero and the villain fight, and the hero ultimately kills the villain. This is exactly what happens in Ending Things, with Jesse Plemons' stand-in playing the hero and the janitor's stand-in playing the villain. What's interesting here is that Jake and the janitor are ultimately the same character, so in the janitor's dream slash fantasy, he's viewing himself simultaneously as both the hero and the villain battling over a woman's affection. And this ties in nicely to this award ceremony scene, etc., etc. But what do you guys think? Is there something interesting in the fact that this is an intentional retread of Oklahoma? I know, Michael, you were the defender of the film whereas the other two <laughs> were not. So what do you think? Does this add anything to it to know that this is like the intention here? I mean, I'll just say I think it's interesting that like we know that this this actual janitor and like Raymond's read the book and I haven't, so I'll be quick and I'm sure he has a, a better thought here. Um, not to put too much pressure on you, but you know, <laughs> I think that we know this janitor is at this school hearing these kids rehearse Oklahoma over and over, that it creates a framework in his brain by which he like <laughs> makes sense of all this stuff. I find like interesting and kind of fun. And in the way they kind of tie together both like Oklahoma and a beautiful mind in that final auditorium scene. I just really got a kick out of as well, but I didn't realize it was a beautiful mind speech the first time I saw it. And it was fun to rewatch it after learning that. Yeah. And you could even make the argument that not only is he the hero and the villain, but he is also the damsel in distress. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it, it's a really, I, I, I will say, I'm, I'm sure that most folks uh, could probably surmise that the ballet sequence was not in the book. Um, but it is one of those, uh, one of those very Kaufman-esque things where, uh, he doesn't limit himself with regards to, to, uh, the colors that he's willing to paint with. When he opens up a canvas, uh, he'll throw whatever works at it, whether it's, you know, a musical sequence or ballet or puppetry. Um, you know, he's, he's such a, a, a weird, <laughs> a truly weird guy, but I think there is something, a bit, uh, something truly transcendent about, uh, bodies in motion and it, and it kind of relates to being John Malkovich because you see Craig making the puppet dance early on in a way that uh, just it, 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 that cut from the puppet after the dance up to John Cusack sipping a beer and looking haggard and uh, disheveled and unwashed it it is something that you're like wow there there really is beauty inside this person and he does feel constrained by his his body or his personality or his station in life, but he definitely has something something wonderful to express, and you know he just he gets in his own way. Indeed. And I think you could you could maybe say the same thing about I'm thinking of ending things. Indeed, Charlie Kaufman has a mind that needs to explore itself further and further, and I look forward to probably indulging in that in the future. Um, again, everybody, yes. if you want to reach out to us, you can call us one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven, or you can email us movies at wisecrack.co not com dot co. And if you guys want to participate in future patron polls where you can choose an episode topic like we did this week, you can go to patreon.com/wisecrack. 
or click the link in the show notes. Y'all, I Do think it. that's it. I think that's it. Is there anything else we got to say before we head out? Anybody? I don't know where you are in the world, everybody, but like. Well, I'll say this for anyone who's in. I, I can only speak to North American Netflix. If you've never seen it, and you want to. It's on Netflix right now, so you can stream it. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. And where can we um, find you guys on the Internet? Um, Raymond, you go for. OK. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, you guys are both so polite. I'll go. No, I'm kidding. Raymond, go ahead. MySpace.com. No, I'll be uh, Michael <laughs> O. Burns on Twitter and Instagram. That's where you can find me. If you do find me, don't be a dick. <laughs> uh, for me, it's uh, http colon backslash backslash www.twitter.com slash crematoria, C R E A M A T O R I A. You can uh, find me there. And also, real quick, I want to plug uh, a new podcast that uh, it's a new movie podcast that's been going for the like last two months now uh, called When Cinephiles Attack. Um, they just did an episode on their top 20 of the past decade, so it's a great time to jump in. And I will just say, uh, it's not the list that I would make, but it is unlike any other list of top 20 movies on the internet. I highly recommend it. And the way that they go about picking their movies for the list, as you may surmise by the title, When Cinephiles Attack, is just so brutal and funny, and they really go after each other. So uh, that's that's hosted by some friends of mine, and I, uh, I, I wanted to recommend it to the listeners. Sick. Austin, where can people find you? When Just they fucking find Google you? my shit. My name's Austin Hayden Smith. <laughs> wow. You'll wow. find me. He's so confident that Just you'll find Google him. it. Just whatever. Google him. It'll yeah, whatever. Complete. Type in the letter A and it'll finish his name. See you guys. We love you. <laughs> Peace. Yeah, great show. Great show.